Hey, it's Alex. And Gabriel. Welcome back to Life on the Brink. Last episode was all about the Eastern Curly, and we talked to Professor Richard Fuller, who's an expert on those migrating shorebirds. In this episode, we're talking to his PhD student, and we're talking to him because while he also studies migration, it's in an animal that couldn't be more different. Yep. This episode's all about swallowtail butterflies. Now, the swallowtail butterflies are actually a family, which is a slightly larger taxonomic group than species. So it goes species, and then genus is above species, and then family is above genus. And so we're looking at a family, and it has at least 550 species. You know, we usually try and keep this to one species per episode, but with insects, there's so many of them and so few people researching them that all of these experts in insects kind of have to just take on these huge groups in their portfolios because they can't afford to only focus on one species. Yep. And so today we're talking about the swallowtail family, or as scientists call them, Papillion day. Did you do your research on what papillion <laughs> <blah>, means? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. And this one's actually been the easiest so far because it's not, not, not as narrowed down as a species. Where the name actually comes from is papillion, which is Latin for butterfly. <laughs> oh, there you go. So they're just yep. called butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> that simple. <laughs> I love it. And one of the reasons why it is probably so basic is because it is a family group, which is bigger. And it was also named by Carl Linnaeus. Just a little bit of background. Carl Linnaeus is the guy that sort of created the uh, naming taxonomy system that we use in biology today. So that whole species, genus, family order, all that comes from him back in the 1700s. Right. So he, this was in his, his OG species classifications. Yeah, this is way back in the days. And so our guest for this episode has spent years specifically researching swallowtail butterflies in Bangladesh. And during this time, he was a part of an assessment on how they are doing, which concluded they're not really threatened. However, there's a strong chance that if we had more data, they actually probably are. The fact is there's just so little data, they can't really tell how the species have been doing. So in this episode, we talk with our guest about how butterflies migrate hundreds or thousands of kilometers and why they do it, how a Facebook photography group sucked him into three years of surveying urban butterflies in Bangladesh's capital of Dhaka. And we talk to him about how following the butterflies landed him shoeless in a leech-filled rainforest. (laughs) Straight up nightmare fuel. (laughs) (laughs) So get ready for episode seven of Life on the Brink, featuring Swallowtail Butterflies and Shuan Chattery. I was, I was looking at your website and I, I think one of the things you'd written was that I think it was in high school, you'd failed a few of your classes and just just back then, did you ever see yourself going down the PhD route? I never, like, uh, well, I never thought of becoming an ecologist or conservationist in my childhood, <laughs> although I prefer to roam around forests. So I actually wanted to become a doctor or something like that. So I'm originally from Bangladesh, but I was in a village, which is like several hundred kilometers from the city. 
it, it was a very remote village. But then for like one and a half years, my family sent me to India to stay with my mother's family, but nothing changed. <laughs> I was the same, the last boy of the class. And then they sent me to Dhaka, which is the capital of Bangladesh. And I was in Dhaka for like 15 years. There are not many green spaces over there, so I could not play cricket or the other sports over there. And I I had to stay all the time in the home. And then I found studying is the only option option that I can do over there. <laughs> so I had to take sports away from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you, what was the first thing you did in butterflies when you were in Dhaka? It's, it was actually like urban butterfly work. So I surveyed the diversity of urban butterflies in three urban green spaces in Dhaka for three years. And when I first went there, I actually went there with a Facebook photography group, like just before my fourth year of the undergraduate. And I was fascinated by observing like 50 species in just a few hours. And I went to the same spot the following day and observed many other species. And then I got fascinated by like butterflies and decided that I need to focus on insect conservation. So you went to this park, saw over 50 species of butterfly in one day. Like, had you, had you, did you know much about butterflies before? How were you able to distinguish them all? Oh, uh, so I actually attended a photography walk of a Facebook group, which is very popular and there are many experts. So they actually helped me with us identifying different species. But later there's some pictorial book, which is very helpful. And it's not that difficult identifying butterflies in the field. So every butterfly actually has different flying style, just like birds. So you can also identify butterflies by watching their movement pattern. Cool. So it's not like not like ants where there's just so many different species and you literally have to put them under a microscope to <laughs> figure out what's what. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's something that sort of drew you into butterflies is that they are they just that little bit more accessible to see and to identify and to learn more about? I think so. Like if you compare the published studies on insects, then you can find out that more studies are actually on butterflies or moths is mostly because they are brightly colored and they easily fly close to the ground so everyone can see them. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that is the reason that most people are actually attracted to butterflies. Yeah. I'd say there's a strong chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing these these field surveys then, I mean, what, what work are you actually doing and, and you know, what does a day look like of doing these assessments? So I visited a particular green space on a particular day, for example, from nine to four, and then did some transject, like how many butterfly species I found in that particular area. And I just took notes on that, like which species I found in which field visit, and then compared the overall situation after like three years. I was just going to say, so I, I saw that um, in some of your work, you found that uh Dhaka has 45% of the national butterflies of Bangladesh. Why does it have such a high high number of butterflies? Um, I think like when butterflies are actually moving from one place to another, they usually visit those areas. But I think it's most, I mean, the urban green spaces are really important because they usually have diverse flowering plant than the uh, remote parts of the world so that it can attract many species. For example, if you compare uh, like Brisbane to 
other remote areas of Australia, then you will find out that like in the Botanic Garden of Brisbane, there are actually diverse plant species. It will attract many butterflies and also other insect groups. However, if you go to the other rainforests, the habitat is really good. However, there are not that many flowering plants. So I think I found many species in Dhaka because of the diversity of flowering plants over there. Interesting. And then what, like, can you describe a few of the species you'd find in these areas? I mean, no, my most favorite butterfly is actually the orange wakleaf butterfly. However, this butterfly is not distributed in Dhaka. <laughs> so when I did some uh, field survey in the rainforests of Bangladesh, for example, in the southeast and northeast portion of the country, then I found that species. And it was really fascinating because it's really difficult to find uh, it's really difficult to find in the field because it looks like a dry leaf. The underwing is like a dry leaf and the upper wing is very colorful. Right. And it's really beautiful butterfly. So when it's folded up, it looks like a dry leaf? Yeah, exactly. So it usually sits on like leaf as well. So you cannot really uh, differentiate the leaf with the butterfly if you haven't seen the movement. Okay. <laughs> One day, it was raining a bit. However, I went to the butterfly survey and <laughs> as because it, it was raining, so I was uh, trying to follow the stream. And when I was walking, one of my uh, shoe was like below one feet of the ground. So I could not even take that <laughs> from there. So I walked the <laughs> entire forest with like without any shoe. And <laughs> there are many leeches over there. So after walk, it was like 20 to 25 leeches on my foot. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a horror story. Yeah. Well, it just, it just reminds me of that scene in Harry Potter where, where they're trying to follow the spiders and Ron goes, follow the butterflies. But following the butterflies doesn't seem to be much better. You just end up with leeches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You cannot, I mean, you need to be uh, very focused during the rainy season. Because there are like hundreds of leeches over there. Hey, it's us. I mean, who knew butterfly tracking could be such a dangerous endeavor? <laughs> Not me. Wouldn't have picked following butterflies would lead you into a sea of leeches. <laughs> <laughs> now, these oak leaves that he's talking about here, the oak leaf butterflies, have you looked them up, Alex? Because you should definitely have a look at a photo of these. All right, hold on. Leaf butterflies. They look like a fly. It's literally a leaf. <laughs> and then they open up and they're a butterfly. They're just leaf one side when the wings are folded up on top and butterfly when they open them back up again. This is incredible. It's not, even, it's, not, it's, not like, it's not even like a green lush leaf. This is like a like old brown sort of uh -huh. dead decaying leaf. Yep. And the butterfly looks like it's dead and decaying. This is why. <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying that because they're in these rainforest areas a lot, there's so much leaf litter around that you just, you can't see them because they just disappear. <laughs> yeah. No wonder he like ended up in a puddle and lost his shoes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> trying to find them. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not swallowtails, just for the record. They're not swallowtail butterflies. Oh, uh, cool. So we did get a bit sidetracked. Apologies. We circled back around. <laughs> and got into the swallowtails again. And Shuan actually explains a bit about how they look, but he kind of undersells them pretty hard. Now, these butterflies are probably some of the prettiest things I think I've ever seen. 
And most of them are black, but they've got these super bright colors splashed over the top of the wings. Yeah, if you're thinking of like a big, beautiful butterfly, it's it's a swallowtail. That's what you're thinking of. They are absolutely amazing to look at. But not only are the butterflies spectacular, the caterpillars, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) I was just browsing through some of the, the many different types and... It's crazy. One, they're just ridiculously colorful. And two, they range everywhere from like the classic sort of Caterpie Pokemon. It literally looks exactly like that. Yeah, it looks like that the Caterpie Pokemon is like based off a real story and it's these caterpillars. Yeah. And then and then some of them just look like this weird alien crossed with a sea cucumber. It's just like the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, but... Yeah, and it's not only that, but this family's caterpillars have this self-defense mechanism where they actually have this organ on the top of their head that, that look like antennae, but they're not. They release this like bad smelling chemical compound and it scares off predators. It is so cool. <laughs> and, and they're called swallowtails. We should mention this. They're called swallowtails because their oh, yeah. tails, <laughs> you know, in inverted commas, look a bit like the tails of swallowbirds. So they call them swallowtails. <laughs> So, so far, they're very creatively named. <laughs> yep. Butterflies uh, is the family name and the, the colloquial name is just they look like swallow birds. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked Shawan about how, how he first came into contact with these butterflies in those early surveys he was doing. I mean, they're pretty much common in Dhaka because they're very large and easier to find out like how many species you are going to find in a particular area completely depends on your experience. So when you first start your field trip, you will definitely observe the larger species first. So the swallowtail butterflies is actually larger than other species. So these are easier to find. And I found many species over, over there. And some of those are very contrasting color. For example, black with red or uh, blue or something like that. And those are really beautiful. So when someone first start their field trip, these particular solitary butterflies will definitely catch their attraction. Yeah. Yeah. And and is there, I mean, you've talked about how there's so many species of butterflies where you were doing these surveys. This, with the swallowtails, are there particular characteristics about how they look and their biology that, that makes them, uh, I don't know, a bit special and uh, something a bit different? Maybe they're a bit larger than other species. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easier to not, see. Yeah, <laughs> but there are not uh, many differences between swallowtails and other species. However, I think they did the global assessment on swallowtail butterflies because they have a better data than other animal groups because they're easier to find so that people can record more of more individuals of that species from different parts of the world. Yeah, definitely. So just going back to the um to to the butterflies in Bangladesh, uh, I saw that I think it was around um, maybe I saw there was a figure on how many of them were were, were threatened with this uh with this data gap. How 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 do you determine whether they're threatened or not? So actually, uh, I mean, this is a really interesting question. So overall, about sixty two percent of butterflies in Bangladesh are threatened with extinction. So when they did the assessment, they uh, primarily focused on secondary data, like 
the distribution data of Bangladeshi butterflies for several years and also the published records. And they also included the expert opinion. So they organized different workshops and collected uh, distribution data to follow up the assessment process. So I think they mostly dependent on the secondary data and the expert opinion on that because uh, not much is available about the population trend of many species over there. Wow. So most of these assessments for butterflies are basically just based on expert opinion rather than actual population assessments? Uh, yeah, exactly. They can do that. I mean, uh, I actually did some global assessments of Indian swallowtails, but <laughs> the weird thing is none of them are actually in the threatened condition because of the data unavailability. Sure. So, I mean, I'm assuming picking out a population number for any species of butterfly is, is pretty much an impossible task because there's just it's just it's such a hard thing to track but if you did have you know the perfect data set that showed you what was happening with with swallowtails but also the other butterflies you were surveying do you think that there would be a downward trend that you're seeing are, are they at risk i think so like for example if i compare my field experiences i started surveying butterflies at the end of 2013 when i used to spot like 50 to 60 species a day in in, for example, the National Botanic Garden of Dhaka, Bangladesh, in 2016, it was very difficult to find over like 10 to 12 species. And even the number of individuals was very low in most cases. So I think the population of the, those species are really declining in those areas. However, we cannot really say with only three years data because you need at least 10 years data or something like that if you really compare the trend of that species. Ah, interesting. So I guess this makes it really difficult then because so many of them could actually be threatened, but it's just, there's just no data to tell. Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, I did seven assessments for the swallowtails that are distributed in Bangladesh because... We do not have any proper threat assessment for any butterfly species over there. So we could not determine whether those species are actually uh, facing threat or not. And also the solitary butterflies has like extended range. They're distributed in the rainforest as well as in the city. So we know their distribution is really large, but we don't really know the population status of those species. So those species are not in the threatened categories because the threat they're facing in different parts of the distribution is not properly known. Yeah, yeah. What are the, what are the threats then that are driving them down? Is it, is it mainly a loss of habitat that's causing what, these, what we think are declines? Yeah, habitat loss and the pollution level. For example, Dhaka is actually one of the most polluted cities in the world. So it's really difficult for the insects to survive there, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's very similar to the, like, vertebrates are facing around the world. For example, the natural system modifications or even fire regime in some parts of the world or the dams and water management or the agricultural and habitat alteration, invasive species and climate change. Yeah. So how does climate change affect them? Uh, yeah, climate change along with the habitat alteration is actually the main threat for butterflies or insects in general. Okay. Like several studies have recently documented these threats around the world. 
because a lot of these species are migrating because of existing within year changes in climate is climate change and the effects that it's going to have on these areas will that change the migration of a lot of these butterflies I think so there might be some however there is no study that actually documented how climate change is actually impacting the migratory pattern of butterflies however we considered the monarch butterfly in Mexico they actually need a particular temperature to survive over there and if the temperature drops then like a vast portion of the migratory individuals will die however the climate change effect in different manner for example climate change is impacting different animal groups like birds that their their size is reducing over time period and the migratory butterflies usually have longer forewings than the non sorry larger forewings than the non migratory butterflies so if something like that is happening for butterflies or for migratory butterflies then it might indicate that the migratory butterflies are becoming non migrant oh interesting like so they might lose the migration altogether yeah exactly wow that's a, that's a, i mean that would be terrible right how, yeah however there is no such study on that so it would be really interesting to work on that yeah paper. definitely do you think do you yeah. think you might get around to that at some point <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm actually developing a research proposal on that. Oh, nice. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. I guess we wanted to talk a bit about the migration side of butterflies because we've we've just had an episode with Rich, one of your two supervisors, about bird migration. But, <laughs> um, I mean, butterfly migration is a whole different kettle of fish. Can you talk through why do butterflies migrate? Is, for, is it for the same reasons as other animals do? Uh, yeah, the reason is very similar, but the migratory movement is completely different for butterflies or for insects than other vertebrate groups. With the term migration, we always think that particular individual is actually showing two-way movement. However, this is not always the case for migratory butterflies. For example, everyone knows about the famous migration of monarch butterflies, but it usually takes three to five generations for them to complete the entire journey, like from Canada or US to Mexico. Right. <laughs> hey, it's us. And we're just cutting in to make sure that we all remember what monarch butterflies are. There are the classic sort of black and orange butterflies that are just seen everywhere. Yeah. If you've ever seen any migration documentary ever, or any insect documentary ever, they all have the monarch butterfly in it. Yeah, they're just, they're so famous for, they've got a huge migration. And one thing that's made them particularly famous is they have like this sort of hibernation diapose thing that they do in part in their migration. And you can go to these forests where the trees are just covered in thousands of monarch butterflies just hibernating. <laughs> and just a quick heads up, he mentions painted ladies a few times here. And so... They are a butterfly, just clear that bit up. Yeah, <laughs> not ladies. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they're not swallowtails though. The reason why he talks about them is because they are one of the most widely distributed butterfly in the world. They've just found everywhere. And so they come up quite a bit. Alrighty, let's get back to it. For the painted lady butterflies, it takes like five to seven generations or more than that sometimes. However, they usually travel like thousands of kilometers. That's incredible. So it's like a relay race from from mother to son to grandson or or granddaughter, like all the way down the line. Yeah, kind of. So they oftentimes call multi-generational migration because of that. Uh And there is another interesting situation. With migration, we always think that 
like huge number of individuals are taking the migratory flight. However, this is also not always the case for butterflies. Interesting. So with these migrations, are they, so is it mostly to do with the seasons? So they follow the seasons where they're sort of, uh, I guess, the conditions are the best? Uh, yeah, exactly. They usually try to follow this. I mean, try to get the most resources from each season. So they usually move from one area to another. Hmm. So do all butterfly species migrate in some way or is it just some that are doing these huge ones? Like what's what's the scale there? Is this something that you see all over the world? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Like if you consider the monarch butterfly, they usually fly from different parts of Canada and North America, Canada and US and then move to Mexico. However, if you consider the painted butterflies, they usually migrate from Europe to Africa or to the Asia. However, this is not always case for other migratory butterflies. So it can be like a few few kilometers or something like that. Uh, so it's not like several thousand kilometers always is the case. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. So my doctoral research primarily involves insect movement and their conservation in protected areas. By synthesizing several hundred published studies, I assessed how widespread is migration in butterflies. Interestingly, I discovered that globally, at least 568 butterfly species show evidence of migratory movement. I like before starting this project, I didn't even know more than five migratory butterflies, so it was quite interesting <laughs> for me. So, so, in my, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, so it was a completely, completely new area. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So, you've done work on a lot of butterflies in your time, but the swallowtail butterflies, are they migrators as well? Uh, yeah, some migrate, for example, uh, the common Mormon butterflies, but also they do not have any definite pattern like monarch butterfly. So some people are, say that monarch is actually uh, a typical mi- butterfly migrant because they always has the same pattern, like same route, and they're doing it for several years. But this is not always the case for other migratory species. And also like they're both migratory and non-migratory individuals in between the same species of migratory butterflies. So this 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 swallowtail, I guess the some of the swallowtail migrations. Would you be able to give us a bit of a uh, bit of an idea of like how much ground they cover and what areas they travel to? Uh, again, unfortunately, there are not enough data on the movement pattern of those species. However, many authors have described that they have observed vast migratory movement. They mostly migrate for in a like in a very smaller distance. In most cases, does that mean they're doing that as individuals? Then they don't do the intergenerational migration. Uh, we do not really have such data. Like, if you want to find out whether there is any intergenerational migration, or how far they are traveling during their migratory journey, then you need to have very good data on the proper on their distribution, and also like you need to have some life history traits, and you also need to track those migratory butterflies. Interesting. So I guess a lot of a lot of this research and a, a lot of what's known is really really limited because there's just hasn't been as much studied on on, on butterflies. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm doing a review on the available studies on butterfly migration, so I find out that over sixty percent uh, studies on butterfly migration is actually focused on monarch butterfly. Really? <laughs> I was just gonna. Do Do you think that there could be other incredible migrations like the monarch that are occurring but we just haven't encountered them because there isn't enough study 
Yeah, I definitely think so because in this in my second PhD chapter, I analyzed uh, the seasonal switching of migratory butterflies. So I find that that the proportion of migratory pixels is actually higher in the tropical parts of the world where there is data deficiency. However, in my first PhD chapter, I find out that the most migratory butterflies are actually from the temperate parts of the world. It's because of the data bias, because most migrant, I mean, uh, there are many experts from the temperate parts of the world. So how many migratory butterflies are actually migrating over the tropical regions or from the developing countries or the lower latitude is mostly unknown. And I am confident that there might be some other migratory species which are actually traveling to like hundreds of kilometers. However, we do not have sufficient idea about their movement yet. Wow. What would be required to, to get that information there? Like, how do you actually track a butterfly across hundreds of kilometers? That's a very interesting question. So, I mean, tracking migratory butterflies actually a bit difficult because of their smaller size. And there are actually several ways you can still do that. For example, you can do the isotopic experiment where you can use that tiny portion of the following and use compared the isotopic ratio. So when a butterfly usually visits some particular areas, then uh, the soil uh, component of that uh, particular habitat actually get attached to that. So the still I mean, the stipple isotopes of organic tissues are actually related to the site where an individual develops, which can be used to infer the most likely natal origin of the migratory butterflies. However, you need to have a very good soil map to find out that. And you can also do the like mark release recapture. Like it was very popular for moron butterflies in the 1980s. They tagged millions of individuals, but the proportion of butterflies they're actually going to get is very low. So the popularity has declined a lot for that particular uh, strategy. And you can do the meta barcoding and use the natural marker. For example, when a migratory butterfly visits flowers, then pollen may become attached to, to their bodies and that can be used to track long distance insect migration. So there's a very uh, interesting recent study to understand the migration of the painted lady butterflies. So they collected 47 butterflies along the Mediterranean coast of Spain in spring and then separated pollen from butterfly bodies. And there was pollen from 157 species of plant, most of which are insect pollinated. And most are of African Arabian origin. So there are some really interesting ways to track migratory butterflies. So uh, just, just going back a little bit, um, what are metabarcodes? <laughs> I do not have sufficient idea about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but um, is the idea that you can sort of trace where the pollen came from? Is that the general gist of it? Yeah, exactly. You can just dissect that butterfly and do some genetic experiments and can find out that. Interesting. Hmm. With these, with uh, with with these migrating species, is conservation a bit more difficult because they do obviously cover a lot more ground? Uh, yeah, exactly. Like you need to have proper idea about the entire movement pattern and also like which path they are following. So it's really difficult to conserve migratory butterflies because of that situation. They actually need diverse habitat, butterflies or insects. So it's really difficult to conserve butterflies in protected areas as well. Hey, it's us again. 
And we're just coming in to say that when Shuan's talking about protected areas here, this is actually quite a sort of broad group. Protected areas is just what scientists use to refer to like national parks, state forests, privately protected land. It all gets thrown in and lumped into this big pile called protected areas. So if you ever hear him talking about protected areas, think national parks and any other sort of natural protected land. Cool. He can get back to it. <laughs> so if you compare the habitat of the protected areas in Australia, it's not that insect friendly. There are not that many flowering plants that can attract many insects. And most importantly, there are not any, enough data for most migratory butterflies. Like a few years ago, people didn't even know how many butterflies are migratory around the world. So I think the future studies can work on that and find out which types of threat they're facing in different parts of their roosting sites. Yeah. I mean, you, you did a bit of research uh, into protected areas on insects and it's it's, I think a lot of people just assume that if you protect bigger species that are a bit more charismatic and, and fun to talk about, that that the insects will just follow along and be protected as well. Is, is that really the case from what you've seen so far? Do insects get protected well enough if we just assume that protecting other stuff will protect insects? Uh, not really. For example, if you follow the same uh, conservation plan for insects and vertebrates, then it's not going to work for insects. So in my final chapter of my PhD, I assessed the insect conservation status in protected areas and saw that like three quarters of insect species are inadequately represented in protected areas. And for example, for the protected area assessment of Bangladeshi butterflies, only 2.5%, sorry, only 1.5% of Bangladeshi butterflies' geographic range is actually within protected areas. Wow. So the protected areas were originally developed considering the distribution of vertebrates, but it's not working well for the invertebrate. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah. So we really, really need to start focusing on our, on invertebrates more. Because they are, they are obviously very important. There's so many of them. Yeah, exactly. Like almost all the species are insects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um. So I was I was looking at your uh, your website, and you've got this incredible photo with butterflies on your face. How did you actually make <laughs> that happen? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not that difficult. I mean, uh, for example, butterflies need salt and mineral. To especially for their reproductive material. So especially male butterflies, it helps to become reproductively sufficient. <laughs> and so, for example, if you go to any rainforest, you can see that many butterflies are collecting the salts and minerals from the water. So when you're doing walk in the rainforest, you will sweat. So the butterflies usually uh, sit on your hand or face or any parts <laughs> of you and will collect that part of the sweat. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you are, I was going to say, what did it feel like having them on your face? <laughs> uh, it's a bit irritating and it, you will also feel good about that. But it will not feel that good in the rainforests because, I mean, there are actually lots of vertebrate feces and if you go there, you will oftentimes uh, find that butterflies are collecting nutrients from those feces. So if you just stand on the side of that and take a photo and if that butterfly is just sitting on your face, then it's not a good <laughs> thing as well. <laughs> oh goodness i was uh, i was gonna say i'd probably be i'd be i don't know i don't know how i'd feel about them leaning on my face i'd probably get 
freak freak out a little bit. I'd also be so worried about because yeah. they seem so fragile. I'd be so worried about injuring them. <laughs> yeah, it's really difficult to. I mean, there are like lots of minute scales on their wings. So if you touch a butterfly, uh, your hand will feel of those scales, which is not good for them as well. Yeah. Wait. So the, 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 they've actually got scales on their wings. Uh, yeah. I mean, these scales are very tiny. Have you ever? I mean, touched any butterfly? Uh, I mean, I, I have when I was a kid, but I, <laughs> I, try, I tried not to intentionally because I didn't want to hurt their wings. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, there will be some dust on wings. You yeah. will not even see that as scales. However, if you just inspect those under the microscope, then you can find out that the scale is very similar to the fish or something like that. And... The color that you see of butterflies is also depending on the scale structure because the color is actually depending on uh, the angle of the light that is refracting from the wings, so which is fascinating. Oh, cool. Yeah. That is really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what we might do then, Alex, is get into some audience questions because um, I think you've got a couple of those lined up for us. Yeah, definitely. So... This one actually comes from my mum. <laughs> um, she, she she really wanted to know. Do you, do you know what uh, what influences butterflies' colorations and the patterns they have? Uh, it's because of the scales. I mean, the position of the scales on their wing. However, I mean, climate change also has impact on that. For example, the migratory butterflies usually have a different wing color structure than the non-migratory butterflies right and but but for most of the case it's the the reason the butterflies are colored the way they are is that um to do with camouflage like you said with the one with the leaf color as well as sort of a predator avoidance so those are those the main reasons they're so brightly colored uh yeah exactly and there are also some like uh false eye spot in some butterflies so if you see the wing structure of the chocolate royal butterfly, which is a very common in Bangladesh. There are some uh, like circular thing at the end of the wing. So when bars, which eat those butterflies, they might find that butterfly as like snake or something like that. So they will just avoid that particular species. And there are also other things like bright coloration. So the bright coloration actually indicates that uh, those species are not I mean, cannot be eaten and can be poisonous. So, uh-huh. and oh, there's actually another mm-hmm. butterfly who is actually copy, I mean, which actually mimic this butterfly species so that they can avoid this predator. For example, uh, Danite eggfly or varied eggfly butterfly. Hey, okay, so mimicry, Alex, do you want to run through the basics of mimicry? Yeah, so mimicry is essentially a way that non-related species basically evolve in this way to look like each other. So whether that's through similar patterns or similar colors, uh, they essentially look like each other and it's a way to ward off predators. And there's two types. In this case, the Dunite eggflies he's talking about, they're doing what's called Batesian mimicry. They mimic a couple of types of monarch butterflies, those black and orange ones that we were talking about which are foul tasting. Uh, so birds look at them and go, well, you must taste crap too and avoid them. So they're kind of freeloaders in this case. Um, there's another type, the second type of mimicry, which is malarian. So malarian is where there's no freeloaders. All the species involved are 
poisonous or foul tasting. And so a good example of this is how wasps and bees often share quite common colors uh, and patterns. So that really distinctive sort of yellow and black, orange and black striped look. Yeah, that's a good example of mimicry, especially malaria uh-huh. mimicry. <laughs> so Batesians are freeloaders and malarians actually sting you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we then got into our second audience question, which came from Valerie. Shawan had kind of spoiled this question by telling us that the oak leaf <laughs> butterflies are his favorite butterfly. So we slightly modified Valerie's question and asked him what his second favorite butterfly species is. Uh, well, following my favorite butterfly is orange spotleaf, which I said earlier. Globally, I found the glassing butterflies as the most uh, attracting yeah. <laughs> because... I mean, you can really see, I mean, both sides of the environment through their wings and they're really beautiful. However, I never saw them in person. And this is actually my dream to watch them some days in North America. (laughs) So you've never seen them uh, Uh, before? uh, Not really. I I mean, I never saw them in person. However, I saw different photos on like Google or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's called Greta Otto or Glasswing Butterflies. It's a great name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I just had a, a, a question from Pat and he wanted to know how long, like what, what's, what's the, I guess, average lifespan of butterflies? Uh, it actually depends. However, they mostly survive like two months or sometimes, I mean, there are records that a butterfly actually survive in a year or something like that. So how much time they're going to survive depends on the environment. Uh, they cannot just pop up in winter because the adult will not survive at that time. Um, so if people wanted to get more, learn more about butterflies or, or obviously because there's such a lack of data, get more involved in, in butterfly science or, or get more involved in their conservation, uh, do you have any suggestions for, for them? Uh, there is a recent app called Butterflies Australia. So you can use it, uh, for the Australian species to find out, uh, different butterflies and record it from different parts of the distribution. Oh, cool. And I think it will really help to conserve Australian butterflies and identify the current status of those butterflies. Awesome. So I know the butterflies are so diverse and this is so hard to generalize, but in, in terms of like, if there aren't many conservation groups out there that people can help out and get involved with then, what are the best things that people can do to to help butterfly conservation in their backyards and their in their local areas? Uh, they can plant different flowering plants because, I mean, if you compare the monarch butterflies in New Zealand and Australia, so there are not that many monarch butterflies in Australia. However, there are like thousands of individuals in New Zealand because they actually have uh, planted the nectar plant and the adult food plant of that butterfly so that it's very common over there. So I think uh, people can plant different flowering plants and the nectar plants in their backwards to support more butterflies and also more insects. So in this case, some pictorial book can be really helpful, like Uh which plants to plant over there. And yeah. Awesome. Um, and just sort of the, the final wrap-up question, uh, if, you, if you had to put a conservation message about butterflies or just conservation in general into a couple sentences that you think people really should hear, what would it be? Um, what should I say? <laughs> uh, Rich had to so take I a moment too. I following the post. To, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
following the post-2020 global biodiversity framework, it's high time to focus on area-based conservation rather than species-oriented conservation because if you want to focus on any particular insect group, it's really difficult to identify them in the field. So if you just focus on like area-based conservation, for example, the area that usually support more insects than the other areas, then it will really help them survive. And there are not many protected areas in the world which are designated considering the distribution of insects. Yeah. So I think overall, uh, conserving them in protected areas and planting nectar plant or other plants to support or harbor more insects will be really helpful to conserve them and reversing the trend, reversing the decline of insects in different parts of the world. Cool. I think that's all the questions that we had. Right, Gabe? Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, well th- thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> no, thanks, Alex and Gabe, for your time and inviting me to be a part of this. <laughs> no worries. Episode 7 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turbal, Yagara, and Garingai people. We pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging and acknowledge that the sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks to Shawan for all the butterfly banter in this episode. You can find out more about Shawan and his work at shawanchaudry.wordpress.com or via his Flickr to see some awesome photos of the butterflies he works on. Uh, that's Shawan underscore ZL. Highly recommend checking it out. There's some great pics. Remember to follow and leave a review for Life on the Brink on whichever app you're listening on. It really helps us and it means the world to us. The first six editions of Life on the Brink are out wherever you're hearing this. If you missed any of those before this one, or you can find them on lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Angus Pizzina for getting that website up and running. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. See you next week. Cool.